We're happy to have this episode sponsored by Real Mushrooms. You probably already know about some of the great benefits of adding mushrooms to your diet, like better sleep, greater mental clarity, and a stronger immune system, but not all mushroom products are equal. Real Mushrooms is the real deal. Many mushroom companies harvest the mushroom and the grain it's growing on. Real Mushrooms products contain no grains or starch fillers. They're organic, cultivated naturally, and third-party verified for beta-glucans, the compound that makes them so valuable as a supplement. They even have a science and medical team of doctors who ensure that Real Mushrooms meets the highest standards. What I personally love is how informative their website is. Have questions about what mushroom is right for you? They have a robust blog with articles ranging from women's health to what mushrooms are most beneficial to your pet. Want to boost your immune system? Have better sleep and feel more calm? Grab the link in the show notes and get 25% off of your first order. Curiously enough, acupuncture is not just sticking needles into people. It's part of a coherent and observation-based medicine that experienced practitioners of the art have handed down over the centuries. I'm Michael Max, your host and guide of Everyday Acupuncture. Listen in as we explore how you can apply the principles of this ancient medicine in your everyday life. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to everyday acupuncture. My guest today is Jamie Panetta. Jamie is an acupuncturist in the Seattle area, although he will soon be moving to the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. And Jamie does a lot of low-cost community-based acupuncture with a focus on transgender health and how Chinese medicine can help with that. He works with various populations that have experienced trauma and also the caretakers of those people. And our focus in this show today is transgender health, how Chinese medicine is helpful, and some issues that both practitioners and patients uh, should know about. Jamie, welcome to Everyday Acupuncture. Thank you, Michael. Um, I just wanted to ask, what pronoun do you like to use for yourself? Oh, for myself? Yeah. Um, I've always thought of myself as a he. Okay, just wanted to establish that. In general, I like to use he and him pronouns for myself as well. Um, I just like to ask people in the beginning of when we're having a discussion or when we're meeting each other what pronoun they prefer me to use for them. Um, it's something that's a very easy thing to incorporate into an introduction, just like asking someone's name. And as far as working with trans people, that's like probably that's that's a pretty easy thing to do to sort of make the conversation more inclusive. I love it. Yeah. And it's a friendly and for me surprising question. I've never had anyone ask me, what pronoun do you like to use for yourself? It hasn't, it hadn't even bubbled through my consciousness. And yet I have patients who are in a transgender process or, or they're, they're flirting with, well, actually, how much am I a she and how much am I a he? Who am I? Right people that are really in the middle of it. And then there are some who it's very clear, I'm a she. Right. And it's a good it's yeah. a good thing to incorporate into a standard greeting just because it takes out the assumption part for um, the practitioner especially. 
So we're we're just it's sort of like establishing um, a standard of care or uh, like when we're doing clean needle technique or something like that, where we just assume we don't make any assumptions about what person what a person's status is and what their identity is. And just having that in the introduction makes a lot easier. I actually put it into my health intake form. So it's right up there at the top with someone's name and their address and everything. And it actually makes it a lot easier. And it's a nice signal to folks who might identify as as transgender or genderqueer or gender nonconforming to say, hey, this is a safe place. This is a barrier that... I don't have to work across. Yeah, that's that sounds really helpful. I'm curious now, because I'm used to thinking just in terms of he and she, as we're beginning to have this conversation, I realize, holy smokes, I think there's a spectrum here that I've not been aware of. What are some of the other answers that you might get on that? So besides he, he or she? Right. Um, it is, there are a lot of different pronouns that people use, and that lexicon is always changing. And uh, some of the things that I see commonly, at least in Seattle and the communities that I work with, if someone doesn't want to use he or she as their main pronoun, they use they, there. Um, I've also seen people not use any pronouns, so they just prefer to be addressed only with their name. And I've also seen people um, have alternate pronouns. So Z, Zier, here, like there are there's really just a wide range of, of pronouns that people like to use. I'm sorry, I, I, I missed what you just said. Say that again. Um, with the with the alternate pronouns. Yes. Yeah, so it could be zier is one is one pronoun that other folks like to use. Um, I I still it just might be my. Can you spell that? Um, yes, it z i z i r is one. Z i z i r. And then I've seen. Uh-huh. H-I-H-I-R, like he, here. Okay. So that's one as well. Um, really, it's because that lexicon is always changing, it's always good to just check in with the person about what pronoun they like because that could change in the future for them as well. Because as we're finding more and more about gender, finding out more and more about gender, it's very apparent that that's something that's very fluid for a lot of folks. So, mm-hmm. you know, one day someone might feel very feminine and one day they might feel very masculine. And then maybe some other time they're a blend of those things or maybe they identify something completely outside of that binary system. And so, yeah, it's our I think our job as practitioners, but also um, just, you know, wanting to show kindness and openness to people on a one on one level to be open to that. You you just mentioned, and actually in a moment, I'd like to get a little more of your background, but we're already sort of going down this one rabbit hole, so I want to follow it for a moment. You mentioned that as we find out more and more about gender. I, I'm curious to know not just what that means, but what are the sources? Where is this conversation coming from, and where can people tap into that? I live in the American Midwest, which is kind of a cut and dried meat and potatoes place. And so many folks here, at least in the area where I live, it you know, gender, it's like there's male, there's female, that's it. Mm-hmm. You're speaking about something very fluidic. Yes, absolutely. And so if people want to 
tap into that or get some information or educate themselves or just become a little more aware, where would they go for some of that? There are luckily a ton of resources to to access that kind of information. If we're looking at it from a provider standpoint, like a medical provider, I would actually Mm -hmm. recommend folks go look at the Gender Odyssey website and they produce a conference every year in Seattle. I think it happens around the end of August or early September. And they have a track that's specifically for providers. So um, counselors, teachers, doctors, uh, surgeons, social workers can attend those those conference events and actually get some continuing education credits for it. There's another track in that conference that's specifically for families with transgender youth or gender nonconforming youth and kids. And there's another mm-hmm. track that's actually for trans people. And I'm, I'm using the, I'm going to use the word trans as a general umbrella term here to include anyone who might be gender nonconforming, non-binary, um, transgender F to M, transgender M to F. So that would be someone transitioning from male to female or female to male. But I'm just going to use that as a broad umbrella term for people um, with a lot of gender diversity, if that makes sense. Just so I to have the conversation. Well, it does, and I've got a few questions about that, too. First of all, I want to remind our listeners that all the things that we talk about, various websites, resources, those sorts of things, you will find them on the show notes page. So we're not going to spell them out, go to this website, blah, 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 just everydayacupuncturepodcast.com, show notes page, they'll be down toward the bottom. You just threw out a couple other terms. They're interesting to me. Gender nonconforming. So gender nonconforming, I like to use that term for, well, I actually use that term for myself. And it's a way to say that I don't necessarily conform to a binary gender system. So when we're talking about a binary gender, that would be male or female, masculine or feminine. Mm -hmm. Uh, where it's they're, they're polar opposites in that. And so I would identify as something outside of that. So outside of that means somewhere along the spectrum on that binary system or, or something that's even more broad or, or nonlinear? For me, it's, it's all of those things. And my definition of that might be a little different than someone else who identifies as um, non-binary or gender nonconforming. So for me, I don't really feel like I fit into that system at all. And I think as a Chinese medicine practitioner, that like that medicine really resonates with me because we don't necessarily have like an either or system for anything that we do. I mean, our medicine is very, very fluid and the way that we practice, we incorporate all of a person into that. So we're not just looking at mind versus body. We have mind-body. Like, it's all one thing, right? right. And so mm-hmm. when, I, when I'm when i practicing medicine, gender is, is sort of part of that or can be for that for, for whoever I'm working with. For whoever you're working with, sure. I mean, we have patients that we see in our practice, and, and there might be something about them. It's, it's just very clear. Oh, they're just kind of like this. And you can treat them that way. And then there's other people, very complex presentations. 
and often things that look absolutely contradictory. And yet there is this whole, there's this underlying hole in unity that if we can kind of get in touch with that, we can be helpful to people. Right. And that's the beauty of it is that our medicine is so individualized for each patient. And I think that that's, that's really wonderful. And that's one of the things that I find very attractive about it. Yeah. So are there, and, and again, this show is, while a lot of practitioners listen into it, so we'll be speaking to them to some extent, it's primarily for the general public. Big, you know, wide range. <laughs> it's, a non, it's a non-binary uh, podcast show. Um, I'm curious to know, what are some of the particular health concerns that trans people might be facing? So the way that I think of this is there are specific health concerns um, in the trans community that are a little bit more unique. And then uh, there is the broader discussion that I like to have about trans folks just not feeling comfortable accessing care, period. That's actually, um, historically, trans folks trying to access health care has a lot of challenges because people don't know where they can go that's actually safe for them, that will be affirming of their identity, or they've experienced a lot of medical trauma in the past of being denied care because of their gender identity. So when we're saying trans health concerns, a lot of times what it really is, is looking at um, someone who's experienced a delay of care because of medical trauma or because of the fear of medical trauma, or they just flat out are not seeking care at all because of past experiences. I'm curious to know what medical trauma looks like. I mean, I've got my own ideas. And, and I hear stories from my patients all the time that um, have not just been failed by the medical system, but injured by it. Right. And this this can look different for each person. But some of the common things that I've encountered uh, myself or within my community is just right at the get-go, people, providers not wanting to use someone's chosen name to address them or not wanting to use their chosen pronoun to address them. And that, I mean, if you can imagine go, trying to go in and see the doctor and then they just refuse to recognize you as you are. So from the get-go, you're not even seen. Right. And that's, I mean, you're already not seen or, and it can be even more extreme as to being denied care at all. So someone's going in, you know, maybe it's trans-related health, maybe it's not, maybe they just happen to be trans and they need some kind of medical procedure, but because they're trans, they're not, um, they're denied services. So that sometimes happens. Folks who are trans historically have also been thrown into mental asylums because of their gender Mm -hmm. identity. And if you um, have knowledge of uh, what mental health history has been like, those are not always very friendly places to be in. I think that that's changed. But yeah, being institutionalized for your gender identity, unwillingly. Yes, yes. So from the get-go, because of the way you identify your gender, you're you're considered broken. We need to fix that. Exactly. Instead of support that and help you live your fullest you. Exactly. So there's a lot of trauma there that people can experience. Um, another barrier, which is not maybe as obvious, is a lot of folks who are trans-identified or gender non-conforming 
often have challenges with staying gainfully employed because of their gender identity. So mm-hmm. um, folks in that group sometimes have less access to financial resources and therefore less access to health care. And that's also something to take into consideration as well is unwelcome or hostile work environments leading to less employment or no employment and then therefore less access to health care. Right. So in many ways, it's not just a matter of can I get health care for a certain problem? There's a whole socioeconomic dimension to this. Right. That affects the health of the trans community. Absolutely. And I would also put into there, um, there's there's a context that happens with location as well. So, And I like to think of that as location privilege. So someone who's trans who lives in Seattle is going to have a lot different access to health care as someone who's trans who lives you know, in a different part of the U.S. or in a different part of the world. Yeah, exactly. Right. So that that's sort of the general social, political context to think about when we're considering health care for trans folks. And then when there, there's also trans-specific health concerns that also happen. If someone chooses to do hormones or um, if they choose to get some kind of gender-affirming gender surgery, then those are more trans-specific things, but not all trans people decide to do those for themselves. How, how can Chinese medicine, I mean, other than that we've got this point of view that's very inclusive, how, how can we help with the trans community and their health concerns? Right. So if we're talking just strictly what's happening in clinic, there's a lot of things we can do. So if someone is choosing to go on hormones, um, we can help them get ready for hormones. So a lot of things I've heard in consult groups with other medical professionals is, um, let me think of an example. Uh, There is a doctor that I was having a conversation with that is really trying to get a trans woman on some feminizing hormones. And his concern was she has a history of getting blood clots, um, has some metabolic issues, is diabetic, has some heart concerns, all of these things, right? Mm -hmm. But giving that person hormones is actually um, essential for that person's quality of life. So she said to him, I would rather be buried in a dress. Ah. So there, there's a there's a, a dilemma there of of a caregiver wanting to help this person live their fullest selves, but then also wanting to do the least harm possible, right? And right, my suggestion it really comes down to a question of where are we helping and where are we hurting? Then that's and that is becomes a real ethical sticky wicket, doesn't it? It does. I mean that it absolutely does. But at the same time, um, where Chinese medic medicine can step in into that is. We can, we can treat blood clotting issues. We can treat mm-hmm. metabolic syndrome. We can treat mm-hmm. all of these things so that someone can more sli- safely get the other kinds of care that they need. And you can imagine as someone is trying to navigate these issues with um, the medical system, maybe they're really anxious. Maybe they're depressed because they're not getting their hormones um, or their surgery or whatever it is. And we can help with that as well. So even though we're not necessarily in the position to 
prescribe hormones or do referrals for surgery, we can still support those things in happening a lot quicker and more safely. Yes. Well, that is one of the, the real beauties of acupuncture and Chinese medicine is it, it, it works with the whole body and spirit and often can help to reduce the side effects of the really strong Western medications. Sometimes those Western medications are really essential to a person's uh, life and health and, exactly. and where they want to be, but they, they sometimes come with a heavy price tag in terms of side effects. Right. And, and denying someone something that is so essential to who they are, if it's hormones or surgery or something like that, can be psychologically extremely damaging to someone. So as much as we can support someone getting, um, I mean, in my opinion, those, those procedures are actually life-saving in a way. Um, well, not in a way. They are life-saving. Like you're having someone have quality of life and be who they are and support their decisions in that medical process. Mm-hmm. Hang tight just a second here. There's a, a, a thought bubbling up here, but I'm just figuring out how to phrase this. So just, just give me a moment to sit with it. Often when people hear about acupuncture, they, they hear about it because it helps somebody with back pain or knee pain or headaches or, or some kind of pain. But what a lot of folks don't know is that acupuncture can be used in all kinds of ways, much like you would go to an internal medicine doctor for you know, things with your digestion or menstrual period. Or... And the other thing is acupuncture can be really helpful in the psychoemotive realm. And helping people with anxiety, depression, uh, all, all kinds of emotional issues. I would suspect that people in the trans community are often struggling with the difficulties that they face in our particular society with being who they are. Can you tell us a little bit about how our medicine helps with that psychoemotive level? Absolutely. So a lot of the patients that I see who identify as trans also have kind of anxiety or depression or post-traumatic stress associated with their presentation. And sometimes we're treating that as the main thing and sometimes it's it's more in the background. Um, so that's, I think, definitely an important thing to realize. It doesn't, or um, to, to understand, it doesn't mean that every trans person is depressed. That's not what I'm trying to say. But, you know, living in an environment that might not feel welcoming to you um, or might feel hostile. Right, or you might lose your job. Right, you might lose your job. You don't know who's going to be hostile towards you um, just living, you know, while you're trying to just live your fullest self. I mean, that that's an incredible amount of stress. So it's not necessarily like... I wouldn't necessarily consider this a disease that that person has. It's more just a lot of external injury that happens to them. That makes sense. You know, it totally makes sense. I have people come in sometimes and they're, um, well, they identify as depressed or anxious. And when I get the backstory about what's going on in their life, my thought is, well, you're not broken because you feel anxious. Any normal human being in a situation like you're in would feel anxious. Yeah. Right? I mean, sometimes it's just the environment that you're in, the situation that you're going through. It's stressful. 
it's naturally going to raise the level of anxiety. There's a ton of uncertainty. Right. And that's, that's a very complicated, it's a complicated issue to work with because I can put needles in someone and help them feel calmer and help them feel maybe a little more able to cope with all the other stuff that's going on with them. Um, But I can't put needles and fix, you know, their hostile work environment or fix whatever stressors are, are coming in and affecting them. And so my approach has, has been more of like thinking of, of our sessions as um, something to fortify that person and maybe give Mm -hmm. them a little bit more resources to deal with all of the other stuff that's happening or just give them a safe space to be because that's, that's so important. A lot of people are in environments where they have no space to let their guard down. Um, and I know, as as you know, as an a-, a fellow acupuncturist, we can't exist in fight or flight all the time. We can't exist constantly in that sympathetic, nervous response. No, not at all. Well, I, I really like your word fortify. I think about that a lot, too, because there's no way we can change a person's external circumstances. That being said, sometimes shifts on the inside in perspective and connecting with resources you didn't know that you had in finding strengths that were latent, that can change the external circumstances or at least a person's response to those external circumstances. And I'm thinking here, too, this is a little bit of of a side conversation before we started rolling the tape today. You were telling me about some community-based, uh, low-cost, affordable care that you're doing for the advocates that are helping, I believe it was refugees who have experienced trauma. Now, I, I know there's various groups out there that, that will treat the people that are experiencing the trauma and help them with that. But you're focusing on the advocates. You're focusing on the people who help people, the people that, I guess in some ways you could say they live with a lot of... Um, secondary trauma, right? Or they've got, a, they've got jobs that lead to compassion fatigue. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to the treatment that Chinese medicine can offer to people, maybe not, well, like, like family members of trans people, or maybe even the people that are helping the trans community that, that have their own stresses that come from that. Mm-hmm. So the organization that I've been working with is called API Chaya, and it's located in Seattle. And that agency does a lot of advocacy and support work for Asian and Pacific Islander survivors of domestic violence and sexual violence. So um, and sometimes that's working with folks who are experiencing um, violence within their families and sometimes it's more global work with working with folks who are uh, survivors of human trafficking or something like that. So I've been working with their staff doing, um, you know, just simple five needle protocol in the ears. That, that's a, a really simple and effective treatment for folks that might be experiencing um, primary or secondary emotional trauma. And it's, it's, been, it's been really great. 
um, to be able to support folks doing this kind of work because it's so easy to get to get burnt from doing that kind of stuff. I mean, it takes a lot of emotional re resources to show up and do that kind of work, even though, yes, it is very rewarding and it's fantastic, necessary work. But I also, I just think it's important to to treat our own selves as a resource, as advocates. I mean, even as healthcare providers, I mean, we, we really need to make sure that our cup is full before we try to fill anyone else's cup. So um, it was just an idea that I had over the summer and I contacted Joanne, who's the executive director at API Chaya, and she was really excited about it. And so um, we set up some time. I go in there every week and I work with anyone who wants to get acupuncture that day. This, I want to focus on this a little bit more. And, I, and the reason is because I've had patients in my clinic that were caring for a loved one who was ill, or they were responsible for really, how do I say this? They were, they were responsible. Yeah, they were just like they were taking care of a, a, a sick loved one. And there were times I would, in service of treating, quote, I'm going to call it the primary identified patient, I would also treat that caregiver. It was almost like a two for one. It's like, I'm going to treat this person here, and I'm going to, then you, you come over here, I've got a chair for you to sit in, or a bed for you to lay, or a table for you to lay on. And I would treat the caregiver, because they would be so depleted, and they didn't even know they were depleted. But after some acupuncture, you could see they were feeling better. Their eyes would light up. They'd, the color of their skin was better. It sounds like you have experience with this, this thing called secondary trauma. And I'm wondering if you could kind of outline that. What are things to look for? Because there might be people that are listening to this that are deeply involved in helping somebody else. And they're really out of sorts and they don't know why. And it might be the secondary trauma. Yeah, I've actually had a very similar situation as to what you just described. I remember a patient I had who uh, had suffered a stroke and he, he was he had very limited uh, mobility and limited ability to speak. And so his partner was the main caregiver and had taken over his business and was doing all of these things. For him, And so I would often, if I had space, tell her to get in the chair <laughs> so she could have acupuncture <laughs> at the same time. Um, uh -huh. So what I've noticed, uh, what I noticed in her case and also with other folks that I've seen is they, so much of their attention is focused on someone else that they don't even, it's almost like they, they can't even feel their own bodies anymore. So you ask them, oh, how have you been sleeping? And they're like, gosh, I don't really know when the last time I've had a good night's sleep is. Or I think I'm stressed out, but I don't feel it anymore because my baseline for stress is just at a constant high. Yeah, I've heard that before where um, they, they, like, they're not even phased by stress anymore. And that, to me, is starting to sound more and more like adrenal fatigue where they've just been functioning at a super high stress level all the time they start burning themselves out they might not really know when they're hungry anymore because their eating is so irregular um, the ability to just do very simple self-care 
kind of goes out the window. So those are those are things to watch for. Yeah. And it's hard to monitor yourself. You know, in some ways, this piece of the conversation, uh, I guess, is is geared toward practitioners or even, you know, I guess, too, if you're listening and and you've got people taking care of you to remember that that they might be overextended. But especially, I think, for practitioners to to remember that that often with patients, especially if somebody is bringing someone into your clinic, there's a good chance that that person is under more than just a little bit of duress. Right. It could probably use some support. And I think, well, this is more of a preventative thing, but if you're in a position where you are taking care of a lot of other folks or, or doing really intense care for maybe one person, that's wonderful. And then also we can talk about ways on how to um, do that a little more sustainably. I'd like to shift this just a little bit. And uh, you gave us you gave us practitioners some ideas at the very beginning of the show about asking what pronouns we'd be, you know, we identify with, what we call ourselves. What are a few other things that practitioners, what would be helpful for us to keep in mind when we're treating the trans community so that we can be helpful? So... One thing that's pretty simple to do is to take a look at your your health intake form and identify what areas in there don't actually need to be gendered. So an example of that would be um, looking at the section, if you have a section on your intake form about reproductive or sexual health, how are you phrasing that? Does it say women's health and then list you know, questions about someone's period or PMS or um, maybe birth history or something like that. Because turns out lots of people have those experiences that might not identify as women or vice versa. Um, you know, if you're act- acting, asking about other kinds of sexual health, you can actually take gender out of that. It doesn't need to be there a lot of times. I also like to put two sections on my intake form for someone's name that they actually want to be called and then their name, um, their legal name. So if you need that for insurance purposes or something like that, and that way you have that information and you know what someone actually wants to be called and you're not going to mistakenly call them by a legal name if that's not what their preference is. Right. I'm curious with the, um, so-called men and women's health. How do you have that phrased on your intake form? I just have it under the section in my intake form. Just has it under sexual and reproductive health, and then I don't I don't um, separate it out because if it's not relevant to someone, then they just don't fill it out. Right. Yeah, it's pretty simple. Um, it sounds simple. I would also suggest folks to look online for different resources around making your clinic more inclusive to trans folks, because there's a ton of information out there. I think it was a couple years ago, Cedar River Clinics over in the Seattle area actually put a trans health toolkit online for free. And it has um, training materials in there for admin staff, medical staff, um, 
on how to make their clinic more trans inclusive. And it talks about how to write your um, intake forms. It talks about language that you can use to be more respectful with people. And it, it even goes into protocols for hormone therapy and surgery and other interventions. So that information is already there and it's free and anyone can get to it. Great. It'll be on the show notes page. Um, from the other side, from the side of the trans community that might be looking for some help with acupuncture and Chinese medicine, what should they be looking for? How do they go about finding an acupuncturist who might be able to help them? Well, I can, I mean, I can talk about that. And my bias is going to be really Seattle based just because that's where I work. So um, I'll give, I'll give you some suggestions around that. And then uh, I do have some other suggestions outside of that, that are more, um, that are less geographically specific. So in in Seattle, we have a couple organizations that have put together some really great databases for medical providers, and there are acupuncturists listed under that. So folks can look at the Ingersoll uh, Center's website, and Ingersoll spelled I-N-G-E-R-S-O-L-L, and you can search on there for different practitioners. And you can also look at Gay City Health's website, and they also have a search engine where you can look for practitioners as well. And I think that, I mean, really though, my, my experience working with trans folks and also being part of that community is a lot of people find providers via word of mouth. Yeah. I mean, that's so often how anyone finds a good medical, well, a medical provider that will work for them. Right. And, and I think a lot of that is really safety oriented. So you want someone that can be vouched for, within your community as, as someone that is um, competent at working, working with different populations. So mm -hmm. a lot of people have come to me as referrals from their doctors or from their friends. And then outside of, outside of the Seattle area, there are a few different conferences that people go to where you can also come in contact with different medical providers. So there's Gender Odyssey, which is the one that happens in Seattle. There's also the Philadelphia Trans Health Conference. Um, that's free for folks. And a lot of medical providers attend there to get training. And then there's also a lot of programming that's just for trans folks to go to. And then there's also a trans health conference actually in San Francisco every year. That is, it's, it's more provider focused, but you could always try contacting those groups for referrals. Those sound like good resources. Yeah. What else should we know about in terms of uh, this issue with with you know if you're if you are in the trans community and you're, and you're looking for help or or again if you're a practitioner and you're looking to be more helpful? One thing we haven't really talked about is building safety for mm -hmm. and this would be more for providers to be aware of but um, on the very basic level of making sure that your space is accessible to someone what is the bathroom situation like is it a single stall restroom is this a gendered but group restroom situation that's a really important thing to to know and to have um, some kind of strategy to navigate with folks who might identify as trans or gender nonconforming. 
And you can imagine the situation for someone who's coming in who might be trans identified, um, trying to figure out if the bathroom that is connected to your office is actually safe for them to go into. Yeah, that's been a real issue here in the past few months. Right. And sometimes sometimes your the restrooms that are attached to your office might not be um, single stall. Maybe they are group gendered restrooms. But if that's the case, maybe there's some strategies that you can work with your patient on, on to make it safer. What kind of strategies would be helpful there? I would really leave that up to uh, what the patient feels comfortable with. But um, I, on my website, describe what the bathroom situation is like in my office so that people can plan to see if that's an okay Mm. space for them to be in. Because for some folks, they use gendered restrooms and they're totally fine and it's not an issue. And for some folks, it is. So it's, it's nice to be able to say up front, here's the situation you can choose if this safe is safe for you or not. And if it's not, um, maybe you can talk with whoever your building manager is and, and designate a restroom that is more gender inclusive and gender neutral. Or maybe it's a, a situation where you might have to stand outside the door with that person and just kind of escort them um, to the bathroom if that's what they feel makes them safer. And just, you know, be present in case there's there's some kind of hostility or if there's any issue around that. Yeah, I mean, there's there's different strategies there. People are surviving all kinds of different situations when it comes to bathrooms or accessibility and um, inclusivity to people with different genders. So it, I would leave that up to um, what the what that person feels is most comfortable for them. As we're having this conversation, uh, there are topics like this one of, of building safety, right? Just like finding a bathroom. That's something most of us, especially if we identify strongly with our gender, it's just not even an issue. We don't even think about that. And And as I sit here and we talk and I think, gosh, what if I was in a situation where it's like, I don't even... You know, am I even able to use a bathroom before I go somewhere? That is, I mean, that just throws a whole different twist on the day. Exactly. And even if your practitioner is really well-versed in and, and competent in working with people in the trans community, if their space is not accessible, that itself is a barrier. Like if you have someone coming in and they want to get treated for a UTI or, mm. or something, or they have, um, you know, maybe they have irritable bowel syndrome. They have something going on where they need a restroom um, on hand and that's not accessible. That's, you know, that's some, that's an issue that needs to be addressed. Yeah. A lot of work to be done there. Yeah. It's a, it's really a huge t- topic and, Although there are very trans-specific health concerns that we can talk about, a lot of it is really making sure you have a safe space for someone to be in. I know that there's another resource that's about to uh, hit the internet here in the near future, and that's your podcast. Yeah, I do have a podcast that I am currently editing, 
and it's called What's the Point? Medicine for the People. Um, and it's I'm I'm a co-host with Kirby Gray, who's also a graduate of the same acupuncture school I went to. We both went to the Seattle Institute of East Asian Medicine. I've heard of that place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you were very familiar with it. Yeah, it, it went by a different name back then, though. Yeah. yeah. So our our podcast is, um, some of it is Chinese medicine and acupuncture based, but a lot of it is really looking at medicine in the context of different communities and also broadening the idea of what medicine is. So for example, one of our guests is actually a farmer in the Seattle area. Um, and so we talk with her about farming and um, seasonal living as being medicinal for someone and also a way to get closer um, to your cultural roots. That sounds great. That's very Chinese medicine-y. Yeah. And in the... I mean, we totally have that idea that living within the cycles of nature is part of really what's required to be healthy. Right. And it's really broadening the idea of, of what we think about when we say holistic medicine. So yes, holistic medicine includes caring for the mind and body, but we can expand that to be, what does that look like when we're talking about holistic medicine in the context of someone's um, social life and then community life and then even ecological life? Well, especially that community life piece, it sounds like because of who you are and where you have chosen to focus your work, that's a huge piece of the medicine that you practice. Yeah, I do think that, I mean, I think that for me personally, I can't really practice medicine without putting it into the context of, of someone's entire life. So looking at where... Um, their community is or where they are, how they identify um, with gender, with um, their cultural identity, racial identity, socioeconomic identity, all of these things I try to bring into the actual treatment. That thoroughly makes sense. You know, so often we're looking for that one magic bullet or that one thing that's going to fix something. But if the issue is as broad as the fabric of our life, it, it's rare that one little, you know, pulling on one thread in that fabric is going to shift that whole fabric. Yeah. And that, to me, is is really what's so beautiful about Chinese medicine and acupuncture is because it's so contextual and it's so individualized and it's very, very flexible. So we're, as practitioners, uh, equipped to meet someone where they're at. Well, you're preaching to the crowd. I mean, preaching to the choir here. It, that's certainly one of the things that I've, well, first drew me to this stuff and then uh, has allowed me to practice for as long as I have. It's funny because I, I was never interested in medicine until I ran into this stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time today to be here on Everyday Acupuncture. Uh, Jamie, is there any closing remarks you'd like to say before we say goodbye here? Um, 
I can't think of anything other than I'm going to send you a bunch of different resources for people to look at in the show notes, both for practitioners and for uh, folks in the trans community who are wanting to get different kinds of care. Great. I'll be sure to get that on the show notes page. There'll be tons of uh, information here. So if you've got questions or you need some help, just go visit everydayacupuncturepodcast.com. Jamie, again, thank you so much for your time today and good luck with your move to the D.C. area. Great. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Everyday Acupuncture. If so, please take a moment, click on the iTunes review button, and leave a review of the show. And be sure to tune in again next week.